This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. One of the main arguments against switching to cleaner energy is that it will hurt your pocketbook or the economy overall. But the cost of solar power is dropping quickly, and in many parts of the country, sun power is competitive with fossil fuels. What about jobs? Last year, jobs in the American solar industry surpassed employment in oil and gas extraction for the first time. That means more Americans work tapping the sun than oil and gas under our feet. Worldwide, more than 8 million people have clean energy jobs, according to the International Renewable Energy Agency. That's an industry group based in, get this, Abu Dhabi. On the show today, we will travel the west coast of North America, home to some of the greenest economies in the world. We'll learn what they are doing to create jobs while moving away from extraction industries toward cleaner businesses. We're pleased to welcome with us three distinguished guests. Kate Brown is governor of Oregon, a Democrat. She previously was the secretary of state and served 17 years in the state legislature, where she was the first woman to be Senate majority leader. Jay Inslee is governor of Washington. He was a Democratic member of Congress for 15 years and served in the Clinton administration as regional director of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Mary Pollack is Minister of the Environment in British Columbia. She's been a member of the provincial legislature since 2005 and previously served as Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you you all for coming. Uh, Governor Inslee, when people think about climate change, it's often very abstract, uh, but Washington is an agricultural state. You recently signed a deal with uh, some other West Coast states, California, Washington, and cities, to get at food and food waste. So tell us how food and agriculture is is a climate issue, something people can relate to. Yeah, well, this is not an abstract. When you're a governor of a Western state that is being assaulted by climate change, that is damaging people you know. This is not an abstraction. This is not a graph. This is not a parts per million issue. This is looking at a family that's lost their home in a forest fire last year. And I remember seeing a lady in Wenatchee, Washington, standing in front of the charred you know, remains of her home, and she just said, where is my house? You know, where is my house? And that sense of shock that she had, that sense of emotion was the face of climate change. And we governors are seeing it in the West Coast right now. We had uh, forest fires larger than, burned an area larger than the state of Delaware in the state of Washington last year. I've uh, had to talk to oyster growers that have had to move their operations because of ocean acidification has it made impossible to breed some of the, uh, the larvae. I look at farmers that worry about uh, their, their water supplies because we had a good snowpack this year, but guess what? It's all melting off. Within two or three weeks, so we've got no irrigation. Now, we could double our, our wine production in the state of Washington, but you can't do it if you don't have water. So when I think of climate change, I think of the faces that I have seen of people whose lives are being uh, threatened by this emergency, uh, this emergent uh, problem. So this is personal. It's real. It's here, and it demands an urgent response. And, you know, I, I, if I can just give you my thoughts of this, we've got to do two things. 
We've got to come at this with a fighting spirit. And that's what you've got to have. This is a fight. Somebody's coming to our house, and they're wrecking our house, number one. And number two, we've got to have a sense of confidence that we can win this. And we have a sense of confidence in our state because we build jetliners, we build great software, and we know we're building some of the best clean energy technology. So uh, you bet, this is real. Governor Brown, uh, Governor Inslee just said someone's coming into our house, but we created this mess. So how do we deal with something that we've created and do it so quickly? Well, we're focused in Oregon in a number of areas, but uh, primarily around coal and cars, because those are the two primary producers of greenhouse gas emissions in Oregon. And so we tackled cars uh, by passing our low carbon fuel standard uh, last year, which I signed into law. And then we tackled coal over a period of time, 1997. We said, we're not going to build any more coal-powered electricity generating plants in Oregon. And in um, a few years ago, we agreed to shut down our only coal-powered electricity plant uh, at Boardman. uh, That will be shut down by 2020. And then most recently, I signed into law a bill that will move Oregon away from coal-generated electricity. We are the first state in the nation to do that. That bill also required that we move to 50% renewables by 2040. So I'm very proud. Oregon is not um, a huge part of the global problem. We're a small state. We only have 4 million people. But we can be part of the solution, and that's exactly what we're doing. Minister Pollock, in some ways, British Columbia was out ahead of even California and uh, Washington and Oregon in terms of putting a price on carbon pollution. And uh, so far, I don't think it's trashed your economy. BC's mm-hmm. still doing pretty well. Tell us how that worked out. Well, the short answer is uh, our experience with having a revenue-neutral carbon tax is emissions are down and the economy is up. Uh, we have a, an economy in British Columbia that has been outperforming the rest of Canada Uh, even through the 2008-2009 downturn. Uh, That was, by the way, when we brought in our carbon tax. Uh, You might think we're crazy for doing that, uh, instituting a new tax when you have an economic downturn. Uh, But the evidence now is pretty overwhelming that it not only dropped our uh, petroleum consumption across all fuel types, uh, but we believe it actually strengthened our economy. Every dollar of our carbon tax is returned to British Columbians in either direct tax reductions or, in the case of low-income people, uh, direct rebate checks to them. So you're constantly recirculating this, uh, these dollars back into the economy, giving people the ability to make their own choices. And because it is so broad, it impacts on everyday people's behavior. We all know that there are industries we need to tackle. We know that there are power grids we need to tackle, all sorts of the big things uh, that governments can get a hold of. Uh, But if you really want those deep emissions reductions, you have to do things that are going to change the market for electricity, uh, for clean electricity, and you have to do things that are going to change the behaviors of everyday people that live in your communities. A lot of the time that British Columbia was doing that, there was a national government in Canada, the Harper government, that left the Kyoto Protocol that was very uh, pro-fossil fuels and hostile to climate action. So how did BC move forward when the, the national conversation was very different? And then we'll get to the United States, which maybe heading down that path. (laughs) (laughs) It it was very difficult. Uh, We we now are joined by some fantastic partners in the world of carbon pricing uh, in uh, provinces like Ontario, Quebec, uh, Alberta. They've all now, uh, they're, they're some ways down 
the pathway of having a price on carbon, they're still not as broad or as high as ours. Ours is about uh, $30 Canadian a tonne. That would equate to about uh, $0.20 cents US on a gallon of gas, uh, for example. Um, but I'll tell you, the most exciting thing for me about COP21 in Paris uh, was seeing the Prime Minister and the Premiers walk in and people reacting with, great, Canada's back. Uh, For us now, uh, we have our federal government leading the development of a pan-Canadian framework, and thankfully, thankfully, uh, one of the working groups they have uh, preparing materials for the Prime Minister and the Premiers uh, is a working group working on uh, a national carbon price and what that might look like. Mm. Um, So for British Columbia, uh, we're finally seeing a federal government um, that really wants to partner on climate action, and uh, that's going to Uh, that's going to really do us proud in Canada, but it's also going to make it possible for provinces like British Columbia to continue to advance. Governor Inslee, you served in Congress 15 years. It's a very different situation in the United States in Washington where climate is is basically uh, highly politicized. There's a presidential candidate who uh, says he would revoke, cancel the Paris climate deal. So how can states and, and cities move forward when it's kind of a toxic debate at the national level? Yeah, it's still, you know, it's still surprising to me. I mean, if you're at the top of the Trump Tower, you can see the curvature of the earth. <laughs> but we have, a, we have a presidential candidate who belongs to Flat Earth Society, so I don't understand what the difficulty uh, is here. Um, we're moving forward in Washington State. And uh, the people of Washington State want us to respond to this challenge. And they understand, and the reason is they understand the health of their children at risk. Uh, not just the polar bears. I remember meeting a woman, a young woman named Jasmine Carlin. She was 14 years old, and she was studying asthma in relationship to proximity to roads and industrial sites. She told me that she was 14 before she understood there were some kids that didn't have asthma. It's that that profound. So we have a population that wants the democratic system to really tackle this problem, and we are doing it. So we have a renewable portfolio standard, We have uh, some of the best efficiency standards, top three in the United States. We have a program that helps people get affordable electric cars. We have a program that builds electric infrastructure. Uh, We have a a system that has helped uh, integrate uh, uh, grid-scale storage so we can integrate renewable uh, resources in our grid. And as of this morning, I'm kind of excited about this because we had a big development in the state of Washington this morning. Uh, We rolled out our first... Uh, proposal to actually provide Washingtonians a cap on the amount of carbon pollution that's coming out of our largest emitters, those who emit over 100,000 tons of carbon a year. And this is going to be through our Department of Ecology. It will be an enforceable cap. We will give our uh, grandchildren what they deserve, which is a protection against massive amounts of of carbon pollution. And that's done under our existing clean air law. So the, the reason we are moving forward is we have a population that want action. Uh, we have an executive who's willing to, to implement the statutory things that are already in the book. We have a clean air law that was put in place in 2008, but the legislature never implemented it. So essentially, the executive branch now is adopting the rules that, that will do this. And as a result of all these things that we've done, uh, we will have a grid in the next four years that is 90% free of fossil fuels. And we are also tackling transportation fuels. So we will have the first executive... Uh, action that will put a cap on the amount of carbon coming out of our transportation sector as well. So I guess the answer to your question is we're moving in the state of Washington. We're making progress. We're confident in our ability to do this because 
look, that's what we do. We create, we innovate, we build. We made the first successful commercial airline. We invented the artificial kidney machine, and now we're doing clean energy. So things are happening. And you're going around a hostile legislature, and similar to, to what President Obama is doing, because you can't get things through there. It is true, but I wouldn't say going around. We're simply implementing the legislation that was adopted, but never implemented by the legislature itself. And it's entirely consistent with our existing clean air responsibilities. And I emphasize, this is about clean air. It is not just about climate. It's about clean air that our kids breathe. And when you talk to people about it in those terms, they want clean air. Governor Brown uh, is often seen to be a trade-off between jobs and, and going green. So can Oregon and other places grow their economy while also uh, getting cleaner? Does that come at the expense of, I don't know, loggers or other people in your state? Well, I think you're looking at multiple states and province that are doing very well economically. Uh, Bloomberg just ranked Oregon as the uh, fastest growing economy in the United States. I know Governor Inslee may disagree with that (laughs) ranking, but we're doing well. And our uh, green, clean technology jobs are part of that. They're growing at a rate of 11%, Substantially faster than uh, other sectors. Um, the key is innovation, and Oregon has seen fit to invest in innovative uh, practices that will ensure that the economy thrives and that our environment is cleaner. And I think we can do both, and I think this West Coast Collaborative is a great example of that. Uh, income inequality is a big issue in American politics today. There's concern that some people will get left behind in the transition to a green economy, whether it's former loggers, former miners. Governor Brown, how, what are you doing in Oregon to make sure people aren't left behind? So let me talk about our uh, timber-dependent rural economy. So Oregon has invested in a product called cross-laminated timber. I like to describe it as uh, plywood on steroids. These are uh, sustainably harvested uh, logs coming off of our uh, forests, our rural forests, that are then used to build beautiful, more sustainable buildings. Uh, It's technology used in Europe. It's very successful. Oregon has the first CLT, cross-laminated timber manufacturing facility in the United States. Um, I believe this is a win-win-win. It's a win for our local rural uh, timber-dependent economies. It's a win uh, for the earth in terms of we are building more sustainable buildings, and I believe it's a win for healthy forests. So it's the uh, triple win. Um, I'm very excited about our investment in this particular technology, but there's certainly more that we can do. And the legislature, I can't take credit for this one, uh, invested in BEST, uh, which is a incubator. It supports uh, green technology and the commercialization of new technologies uh, that will help us tackle uh, some of the issues that we've talked about. So there are multiple approaches. Uh, The third approach we uh, passed a couple of years ago, a public purpose charge that uh, supports and uh, helps low-income families with weatherization practices on their homes or in their apartments um, that will reduce their energy costs. So we're tackling it at multiple different levels. Kate Brown is governor of Oregon. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the green West Coast economies at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My other guests are Mary Pollack, Minister of the Environment at British Columbia, and Jay Inslee, Governor of Washington. Uh, Mary Pollack, uh, there's a lot of fossil fuels in the internal uh, interior of, of North America that, that wants to get out to, to market in Asia. The American coal industry is basically dying. Companies are declaring bankruptcy. Uh, there's a port 
proposed liquid natural gas port in, in British Columbia, and some climate scientists recently wrote to the government of Canada saying, please don't do this $36 billion investment in liquefied natural gas. And you wrote back and said they're not connected to reality. So tell us. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about what it was they were basing their conclusions on. Uh, science is only as good as the assumptions that you put into your analysis. And in this case, uh, in all fairness to the scientists, their assumptions were based on the unmitigated emissions from that plant. So uh, they were basing their uh, conclusions on a profile that would have seen uh, this plant become the single largest emitter in all of Canada. However, um, there are many things you can do to reduce emissions in terms of a liquefied natural gas project, uh, not just at the plant level, but also in the upstream and in production. And we now have put in place a benchmark for intensity of CO2 in production. Uh, That will have those uh, be at the uh, lowest rate of any other uh, production facility in the world. Uh, upstream with the proposals we have for methane reduction as well as the proposals for electrification of the processes uh, instead of being at around uh, 18 megatons annually in emissions, uh, you would drop the emissions from that plant and its upstream to about 3.7. So a significant, significant drop. And when you consider uh, that our export markets are those where uh, the LNG that they would receive um, would avoid the use of thermal coal in generation of electricity, um, you're talking about potentially, even on a life cycle basis, uh, a reduction in those areas of about 20% of their GHG emissions uh, if they uh, were instead of uh, coal to use LNG. So uh, really, there's a global solution to be had, and one of the biggest challenges we have globally is the capacity for jurisdictions uh, to transition to cleaner fuels um, and the time it's going to take to do that. You don't want them languishing on coal and diesel. Um, Natural gas uh, used in the right circumstances can have a significant impact in cleaning up not just emissions, uh, but also, of course, particulate matter and other uh, things that concern us around the health of populations in places like Beijing and and other areas of the world where uh, there are people who are dying uh, because they don't have clean air. Governor Inslee, do you th- agree with that natural gas is a transition fuel, uh, even though it's a fossil fuel, and that it should be part of a transition to a cleaner economy? Do you support uh, natural gas and liquefied natural I, gas? I don't think there's a black and white answer to this. We know we have to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. It's an absolute necessity if we're going to have any chance to have a, a, a meaningful climate on the face of the earth. We know we have to get there. And so you have to look at these almost on a case-by-case basis to see if they make sense of some kind of transitional thing. I do think that we have to be very cautious on natural gas and the methane emissions uh, associated with their production. And I think we have more work to do to be confident in what our assumptions are about methane releases in the drilling and transportation. I don't have full confidence yet that we really know that issue. We've got to understand that before we do consider it a transitional fuel is the way I I would look at it. We had Lou Alstad, a former executive vice president of ExxonMobil here recently, and he agreed that the industry does not have a handle on methane right. emissions. Yep. And that's, they, that's the ExxonMobil executive. Uh, Governor Brown, $6 billion uh, natural gas plant, was, uh, the, the developers pulled the plug in Columbia River Basin. Mm-hmm. So how do you see natural gas? Is it part of a transition? Or a lot of people who are against fracking think that the natural gas could be worse than coal in some cases. Well, Governor Inslee said it very well. Uh, it's certainly a gray area. We need 
need more data. Um, we, uh, in terms of the global issue, uh, it has to be part of the solution. Governor Inslee, coal ports, there's a lot of them proposed along the West Coast, a lot of American coal looking to Asia as a lifeline. Some of them have been rejected. Some of them have been pulled. Where does that stand? And do you, do you support building coal ports, uh, which could develop jobs in Seattle and the port areas of, of Washington? Well, the first thing we support is uh, eliminating our dependence on coal in our grid, which we are doing. So we're shutting down our own coal plant in, in a few years we just had legislation this year that will allow us to uh, shutter two plants in Montana that are feeding us coal-based electricity. We want to have a state free from coal. We're moving in that direction. On the coal port issue, one of the things, and I have to be somewhat judicious how I talk about it because I'm a permitting authority, so I can't give a black or white answer on this subject by law. But what I can say is that in our environmental protection system of permitting, uh, we are insisting on evaluating the carbon emissions of the coal wherever it is burned. So even though if the coal is not burned from the shipping point, it doesn't matter where it's burned, the carbon dioxide from that coal ends up in my waters in Puget Sound because we have a global, essentially partial pressure system that puts carbon uh, into solution and acidifies our water. So as part of our local permitting process, we are insisting on the applicants to assess what the, the carbon pollution global, um, or actually local, uh, uh, ramifications are produce of, of burning that coal. And some of the proponents don't like that, but I think it's a fair thing. Because frankly, it doesn't matter where you burn it, it ends up in my backyard and in Puget Sound, which makes it difficult to grow oysters. So we are having that assessment. Uh, we have one plant right now that's still under consideration that's part of the environmental protection, or part of our environmental impact statement. We're getting that, those results. We're talking about green West Coast economies. With That was Jay Inslee, governor of Washington. We also have Kate Brown, governor of Oregon, and Mary Pollack, minister of the environment from British Columbia. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to go to our lightning round right now. We're asking each of you a uh, yes or no question, uh, starting with Mary Pollack. Uh, yes or no, Canada is considering building a wall to keep out undocumented Americans <laughs> fleeing north after the upcoming presidential election. <laughs> Yes or no? That'd be no. <laughs> we, we want people to come and work in Canada. We need people. Uh, Governor Inslee, uh, Washington is the second largest wine producer in the country after California. During your trip to California, you are secretly going to Napa Valley, Valley wineries and encouraging <laughs> them to move to your state as temperatures become too hot for some varietals in California's wine-growing <laughs> regions. Yes or no? Well, you're, you're on to me, but I'll tell you what's happening. <laughs> This is a serious issue. Napa Valley is moving to Washington because the climatic conditions that exist. Can I interrupt? (laughs) Napa Valley is moving to Oregon. That is really clear. (laughs) Through Oregon and then on up to um, uh, Governor Brown. Traffic in Seattle is worse than traffic in Portland. Yes or no? Yes. Uh, that, is because, that is because Portland has invested in an extensive light rail system. We, we were blessed by early leadership. Folks like Congressman Earl Blumenauer and Governor Barbara Roberts worked really hard to partner with the federal government to uh, both uh, have the vision for light rail and get it implemented. Governor Inslee, Seattle should have invested more in its scrawny light rail system and managed it better. <laughs> You betcha. <laughs> I will point out that we just passed, and I, this is actually a matter of some pride, uh, we passed the, not only the largest transportation package 
uh, in our state's history, but the greenest transportation package with the heaviest percentage attributable to light rail. We're going to build a light rail system, we hope, from Everett to, to uh, Tacoma. Uh, bike lanes, HOV, rapid transit bus. And we're proud of that achievement because your transportation policy is just about as important as anything else you do and when it comes to the world of carbon. And I think that's easy to forget. Any infrastructure that we invest in today has a carbon footprint. And, and we have We've been diligent in making sure that we think about that when we make our infrastructure improvements. Mary Pollock, Vancouver, British Columbia, is adequately prepared for sea level rise that will occur in your lifetime. No, (laughs) absolutely not. And uh, it's one of the things, I think, that motivates Vancouver uh, to be so aggressively pursuing their climate action agenda uh, inside our province. Governor Inslee, the $3 billion tunnel being bored under downtown Seattle to ease traffic congestion is adequately protected from rising seas that could flood it and make it a very expensive slip and slide. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to say yes, just so we can maintain our confidence. (laughs) Uh, Governor Brown, U.S. rejection of the Keystone XL pipeline shifted transport of Canadian tar sands oils to rail cars that pass through many American communities. Probably, yes. So I want to go back to another important point that Governor Inslee raised, and that is our transportation infrastructure. Oregon led the nation uh, many years ago with our land use planning system. And that has been a very wonderful tool for keeping our urban communities uh, intact and helping us build uh, transportation infrastructure. And I just think that that is a tool that we don't always think of uh, when we're talking about global climate change because having compact cities enables us to uh, develop a transportation infrastructure that enables people to get to places very easily. And you can do it in a way that promotes health as well through walking and biking. And so I just want to put that on the, the radar screen. Governor Inslee, under President Obama, domestic production of fossil fuels has soared, yes or no? Uh, there has been clearly an increase, and there's a certain irony, but having said that, I want to tell you, I'm so glad that President Obama has been a president the last eight years. His leadership on this has been tremendous, and uh, he has stood up against uh, enormous, uh, you know, flatter society members in the U.S. Congress that are dominant in one of those chambers. And his act of leadership is going to succeed, I believe. So thank him. Uh, Governor Brown, who will win the Oregon-Washington border battle this year between the Oregon Ducks football team and the Washington Huskies? <laughs> I'm confident that our award-winning Ducks will be successful. <laughs> Governor Inslee, who will win the Oregon-Washington border battle this year between the Oregon Ducks football team and the Washington Huskies? Well, it'll be the Huskies, and they'll be using our good bike lanes and bus to, to, to get home. Mary Pollock, as a Canuck, do you even know what is an Oregon duck? (laughs) I'm guessing it doesn't quack. Okay. (laughs) All right, that ends our lightning round. Give them a round of applause. Thanks for them. Thanks, Um, you guys. That was fun. Governor Inslee, you're up for re-election in November, facing a Republican, Bill Bryant, who who criticizes you for traffic jams in Washington. So how could you get green mobility, uh, address traffic jams in in Washington, while also having greener, lower-carbon mobility? Well, we have a really uh, beautiful thing here, which is uh, you can increase mobility and reduce carbon pollution at the same time. They are not enemies. They are mutually uh, uh, tied at the hip. Because we are not building any more dirt in the state of Washington. We have a fixed, finite land mass, and we have to increase the carrying capacity of all of our corridors 
to stop the strangulation of, of traffic. So for every mile of corridor, we have to increase the, the carrying capacity of that so more people can use that, car that carrying capacity per hour. Okay, we know that as from a rule of physics. Well, by doing that, you reduce almost anything you do to do that reduces carbon pollution per mile traveled per person. And it gets you where you're going to go faster. So when you, when you uh, provide bus transit for people, first off, they love it. Every bus we put on, it's full the next morning because people love the service they're getting. We have a new system of providing uh, lanes that have decreased the, the, the travel time on buses. We put on a light rail system, uh, a new uh, a station. It's right in front of the University of Washington football stadium where you can see the Huskies beat the Ducks next year. <laughs> uh, we have had, we've had writer shop that like has doubled our, uh, doubled our projections. So the, the word is, is that people love public transport. They use it at the same time you're reducing carbon pollution. So they're very, uh, very compatible. California Governor Jerry Brown is, is infatuated with high-speed rail, uh, very expensive. Governor Inslee, do you think that that's a solution for the West Coast uh, as urban quarters get more dense? I mean, that's possible, but right now in our generation, what we're focused on is light rail in the, in the Seattle-Tacoma-Everett uh, corridor. And uh, we will have an initiative on the ballot this year. As part of our transportation bill, we made that possible. Um, and let's not forget the job aspect of this work we're doing as well. Our transportation bill is going to put 200,000 people to work with family wage jobs. And I think that's a pretty good thing. So uh, we're focusing on the light rail first. Governor Brown, there's a company in Oregon, New Scale, which is a new nuclear company, received $200 million from the U.S. Department of Energy. It's a next-generation nuclear company. Uh, do you see nuclear as being part of the, the, the climate solution put forward by the Paris Agreement? I'm not sure that da the data is there to confirm uh, the level of safety around storage, and until we have the data and proof around safety, I'm not there yet either. Governor Inslee, uh, Hanford is the most uh, contaminated nuclear site in the country, biggest environmental uh, site in the country, the big uh, uh, economic debacle in Washington with nuclear power. Uh, where are you on nuclear? Well, I think uh, two things are going to happen before nuclear becomes uh, an important part of the future. One, we need new technology so that it becomes price competitive, and that certainly does not exist right now. The reason the nuclear industry uh, essentially ended was not because of Jane Fonda. It's just basically the cost was extraordinary to build these multiple billion-dollar plants with huge risk associated with them. So there will have to be a breakthrough technology to make them cost competitive and safer. But the second thing is we have to have a storage system that we have the confidence in. And we don't have that right now. We don't have the prospects on it. Yucca Mountain was a potential, and as you know, that's on the shelf at the moment. Uh, I do support research in, into both of these things, though. I think it's important, given the level of crisis, and it is an urgent crisis on carbon pollution, I do believe it is appropriate to be doing R&D to see if we can uh, reach uh, safe systems with small modular reactors and research to see if there can be a long-term disposal system. I think those are rational decisions right now. Mary Pollack, uh, Rachel Notley was elected uh, premier of the neighboring province, Alberta, uh, which is like the Texas of, uh, of Canada. That's kind of like, she's a very progressive person. That's kind of like Jerry Brown being elected governor of Texas. Uh, <laughs> so tell us how that has affected the politics around energy and politics in general in Western Canada, because that was quite a seismic shift. So uh, first, let's all agree that nobody's like 
uh, Governor Jerry Brown. Right? So, <laughs> um, it has really, the conversation across Canada uh, has changed dramatically in, in the last uh, year or so. Uh, but particularly in Alberta, where there was always uh, massive resistance uh, to taking action on climate uh, and that uh, around carbon pricing in particular. Uh, now we see uh, Alberta announcing that they will have uh, a carbon price that will begin at $20 a ton. Uh, next year will go to $30 a ton uh, by 2018. It's not quite as broad as British Columbia's, uh, but we'll take it because uh, being out in front as we have been has been tremendously challenging for our businesses. Uh, one of the uh, difficult challenges for uh, jurisdictions, subnational jurisdictions, I think in particular, is that uh, you can you can drive really hard down the climate action path. If you go too far too fast, uh, you simply cause industries to move to another jurisdiction where they can continue to emit and do so more cheaply. So you have to find that right balance in terms of putting the pressure on through carbon pricing, but not putting the pressure on to such an extent um, that you then see that industry uh, move to another jurisdiction and uh, simply emit elsewhere. So with partners now uh, like Alberta, and then, of course, the pricing we're seeing through cap-and-trade in Ontario and Quebec, uh, national carbon pricing being discussed by the Prime Minister. Uh, I'm very hopeful that you're going to see uh, increasing progress on carbon pricing in Canada. Uh, it's interesting the way the politics has shifted, though. Uh, you now have, uh, first of all, uh, the female premiers in Canada, yes, go women, um, are the ones who are advocating that the federal government be uh, more directly involved um, in addressing climate in, uh, in our country. So uh, that has been a real shift, and it's one we think is very positive for British Columbia. Greg, could, I, could, sure. I, could I piggyback on this issue of carbon pricing? Um, we have a carbon pricing initiative on our ballot this fall that would establish uh, a carbon uh, tax, essentially. And um, uh, it's unlikely to succeed because it, uh, although it was billed originally as being revenue neutral, it in fact, according to the analysis, reduces state revenues by several hundred million dollars because of some drafting issues. And this is of concern to a lot of people, including myself, because this would take money out of our school funds. And the reason I mention this is that I think it is likely this will not prevail. And I do believe it will not be a negative a comment to the extent that to, to somehow suggest that Washington doesn't care about climate change I think if it does not pass, it will just say that Washingtonians care about school budgets and don't want to reduce hundreds of million dollars in school budgets. And I say that because I think it's an important message. We're going to move forward, we hope, over time on issues like this, but it won't be this fall. We're, We're talking about uh, clean energy at Climate One. Our guests today are Kate Brown, Governor of Oregon, Jay Inslee is Governor of Washington, and Mary Pollack is Minister of the Environment in British Columbia. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions at Climate One. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Governor Inslee, I understand that uh, small hydro plants uh, could be the answer, especially for Western Washington. Not the big plants that need big dams, but the small localized hydroelectric projects. Could you comment on that, on the future of hydroelectric power I in think, Washington? I, I think there is some opportunities, particularly for run-of-the-river systems, so they do not block the river, but in fact they capture the kinetic energy and don't disturb it too dramatically. There are several new research projects. One went in, in fact, just where I used to live, over in the Yakima Valley, that are in an R&D phase. 
I don't think they're going to have a very significant import, though. I, I think this will be a, you know, fractions of percent. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, Bob Archer, Citizens Climate Lobby. My question is for Governor Brown and Governor Inslee. If in the next Congress, the Republicans introduce a sound revenue-neutral carbon tax, would you in principle endorse that? I think in terms of carbon policy, that if we can get a national policy that will incent and motivate us to reduce greenhouse gas emission reductions, then that is a good thing. So I've just, unfortunately, I've got to be a truth teller here, and sometimes that's a hard job. There is zero chance of that particular party being a a productive uh, (laughs) uh, proponent of any policies because they are captured by those that deny the clear science of this. And as long as they deny the clear science of that, it's impossible for them at the moment to be productive partners. And and we have have discovered that in the state of Washington. The proponents of this carbon uh, tax system that's going to be on the ballot this fall, uh, they believe that the Republican Party would rush to embrace it as a non-regulatory way to deal with carbon. And there hasn't been one single voice raised in, in that regard. So unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. Right now, what I'm proposing, in, we're putting into place, as I said today, which is a limitation on carbon. Uh, uh, emitters will be required to reduce their emissions through a regulatory system. That's what I'm in favor of. Governor I, to Mary Pollack. Could I just say, uh, from British Columbia's standpoint, I mean, uh, obviously, whatever initiatives your own jurisdiction undertakes, you think they're the best. Um, but our interest is not in seeing everyone adopt the same type of Uh, carbon price we have. Uh, Let a million flowers bloom. As far as we're concerned, it's put a price on it um, so that the competitiveness doesn't become uh, an issue. However you do that, cap and trade, direct carbon tax, revenue neutral, not revenue neutral, uh, you know, we see that as up to jurisdictions themselves. put a price on pollution. And and if I can add, one of the reasons I enjoy working at the state level is because we are able to be, uh, implement innovative, uh, creative public policies. And I was so pleased to sign the first uh, in the nation, Coal to Clean. Oregon has a history of innovative public policy making. The states are truly the petri dishes um, to move us forward, and that's why we've worked together through the Pacific Coast Collaborative. Before we go to the next audience question, Governor Inslee, where can Republicans and Democrats agree? Is it on forest fires? There are 10 Republicans who, when Pope Francis came to America last year, came out and said there ought to be some action on climate. So they're not all of one mind. Where can Republicans and Democrats work together? Uh, On solutions. And I have been awaiting the arrival of a Republican leader who will stand up and say that my party, the grand old party, stands for recognition of clear science and common sense solutions that grow rather than shrink our economy. And I am still waiting. And John Huntsman, former governor of Utah, did that one. He's not their nominee. <laughs> <laughs> okay? Their nominee is a, is a fellow who calls this a hoax. Now, I can't think of a more damaging thing to say in America today than to try to dissuade Americans from stepping up to this challenge. And that's the situation. And I keep hoping, and we keep extending our, our, our hands of friendship to come discuss solutions. But the problem is, is that the Republican uh, elected officials refuse, by and large, 95% of them, to say there's even a problem that we can, we can deal with. So we look for small things we can do. Uh, you know, we had some Republican support for an incentive program for allowing consumers to get access to electric cars. 
There's been some small help to build electric charging infrastructure. There are some things we can uh, uh, do to help, but I just can't wait till this becomes a bipartisan issue. We need, we need a bipartisan solution rather than election debates, and I look forward to that. Kate Brown, Republican. Uh, to, to be fair, and I am not an rep- uh, apologist for the Republicans, but to be fair, in Oregon, we've worked really hard uh, across the aisle uh, with Republicans and Democrats over the years to uh, move to make sure that Oregon is meeting its greenhouse gas emission reduction goals. And we did get bipartisan support on our coal to clean legislation. And I am hoping, uh, moving forward, that we will get bipartisan support on a transportation package that invests in mass transit in a way that will continue to help Oregon meet our goals. And um, I am excited about the opportunity to do that. And I know Governor Inslee had bipartisan support on his transportation package uh, that moved us in the right direction as well. Let's go to our next audience question. Hi, my name is Emily Heffling. I'm with the Union of Concerned Scientists. We all know that we need to swiftly transition away from extractive industries right now. And as a young person, I grew up in South Florida, so I know the impacts of climate change very well. Um, And something I think about a lot as someone that works on state policy is how do we balance uh, the need to push large state policy to um, phase out fossil fuels right now with the equally important need to um, develop state policies that can provide solutions, innovative solutions, to all of the impacts we're already facing. Climate impacts are are so localized. Um, Every single city and community is different. So how can we use the Petri dish approach, as you just mentioned, Governor Brown, to solve those problems? Thank you. Governor Brown. Wow. Decarbonize. Um, I think there are a couple of things. What Oregon has been doing is investing in innovative technologies to um, grow uh, small, creative businesses around the entire state and help us move us in the right direction. These are growing the jobs in the glee, green, clean technology arena. Uh, the other piece in terms of uh, young people, I'm very committed to uh, expanding our uh, science, technology, engineering, arts, and uh, math programs in our schools. We doubled our funding for that so that our young people have access to the technology experience that they need, as well as the arts component, which lends itself to the uh, creative, innovative side. Let's go to our next question. Thank you. Welcome. Hi, this is uh, directed to Minister Pollack. Um, I don't know if you are aware of this. Uh, North Vancouver, uh, the city of North Vancouver, passed a law to require a climate risk disclosure label on gas pumps. And I have two questions for all of you. Uh, Do you see that um, strategy spreading and um, throughout BC? And in general, all of you in the panel, do you think that it's time for oil companies to disclose the risks of climate change to consumers of gasoline? And most of us consume it on a regular basis, and we can't see the external costs that are inherent in the consumption of the fuel. Thank you. Mr. Pollack, gasoline pump disclosure. Yeah, I am aware of it, and uh, there is interest, I know, being expressed by other communities across British Columbia. I don't know if they'll go ahead with it. I think anything that you can do to have people understand the direct connection between activities in their life and how that might contribute to climate change uh, is important to do. It is way too easy for us to focus just on big industry and not to realize how the, the choices we make every day in our lives uh, are impacting on climate. And it's not just driving a car. 
Um, you know, we have to find ways to make steel without coal if we're going to really make a difference. We have to find ways to make cement uh, that we can uh, use for concrete without uh, high emissions intensity uh, in the production. So all of these things impact our daily lives um, and the choices that we make. So the more we can have people be aware that when they take that pump and they put it into their car, uh, it has an impact. It's not just the big nameless multinational company out there. Uh, the better, because they're going to make different choices. We have to wrap it up. I want to close by asking each of you, what can an average person do to really make a difference, Governor Brown? Great question. I believe, and I want to respond a little bit to the gentleman's question. Knowledge is a very powerful thing, but I also believe we need to use the nudge approach. And we use this most recently when we changed our voter registration system. Now we are moving to a opt out if you don't want to participate in the election system. So I think in environmental policies, to the extent that we can use the nudge approach, that's a very good thing. But each one of us can make a difference. Each one of us should be and we need to work together to move uh, not only the West Coast, but the entire world forward. Minister Pollack, what can an average person do to make a difference on climate? Vote. <laughs> no, I, I, I say that because, you know, we, uh, when we launched our carbon tax, uh, that became the subject of that year's election. And uh, the whole theme of our opposition was scrap the tax, axe the tax, um, and so that, that was uh, one of the major issues in the election. Uh, we won that election, uh, not by a landslide, but we won it, and we've won uh, a subsequent election as well. Um, and uh, lo and behold, the opposition now uh, has changed their tune, and they're actually uh, in support of the carbon tax, and where we debate is on how we should manage it. But uh, at the end of the day, um, the single biggest uh, fear that I hear as I travel and uh, go to different countries, different jurisdictions, talking about climate, uh, is uh, political leaders who say, you know, I I'd love to do something like that, but I know I'm going to lose the election if I do. Governor Inslee, last word. What can an average person do to make a difference? Tell your grandchildren, your children, your nieces and nephews, if they don't vote, they're getting written out of the will. So <laughs> We have to end it there. Our thanks to uh, Governor. I just, just want to add one thing while we're talking voting. I literally won my first race for the House of Representatives in the state of Oregon by seven votes. So I am living proof that every vote matters and that your vote is your voice and I, your voices must be heard, particularly for younger people. That's Governor Kate Brown of Oregon. We've also been hearing from Governor Jay Inslee of Washington and Mary Pollack, Minister of the Environment in British Columbia. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience here in San Francisco and online and on air. Thank you all for joining us today for this Climate One conversation. Thank you, guys. Our three West Coast officials were in San Francisco for the Clean Energy Ministerial, an international gathering of energy experts working on the Paris Climate Agreement. After the program, I strolled around to the Startups and Solutions Showcase in Union Square to check out some cool new clean technologies. Our guests had talked a lot about transportation, and I was especially curious about exciting new ways to get around. As soon as I stepped into the tent, I came face to face with a beautiful Shelby Cobra, an iconic roadster from the muscle era of the 1960s. But this Shelby is different from other Shelbys. For one thing, its muscle comes from electricity, not gasoline. But even more amazing... And let me get this. This is a car that's printed plastic that I can drive on the highway and goes how fast? It'll do about 85 miles an hour. 
That's Craig Blue, who works for a federally funded group that built the car with Oak Ridge National Lab. And yes, we said printed plastic. So what we did is we designed and built a Shelby Cobra via added manufacturing, six engineers in six weeks. As we sat in the car, Blue gave me a crash course in additive manufacturing, better known as 3D printing. So Craig, how big is the printer that makes this car, and actually how does it create a car out of thin layers of plastic? Okay, so presently we have a printer that's 20 foot long, 8 foot wide, and 6 foot high. And you have what we call a build stage. So that's 6 foot wide by 20 foot long. You go out and you're, you're melting a plastic and depositing a single layer. Then it drops down by the thickness of that layer, and then you print your second layer. Think of it almost like uh, stacking Pringles. But, you, but you're doing this now in three dimension, and I'm putting material only where I want to put material. So I can directly put in... My, my base, my, my seats, my, my window supports, everything can be done, but it's all layer by layer. So electric cars cleaner than gasoline. We're here at a clean energy conference in San Francisco. Is a car made from printed plastic less uh, carbon intensive than one made from steel or aluminum? The energy intensity to actually make the car is significantly lower than traditional methodologies. Another thing that I really want to point out, we're using thermoplastics. So... At the end of life, you can take these plastics, grind them up, and then reuse them again. Now, there, there is um, a knockdown in terms of performance, but really it's highly recyclable. And they're looking at a whole distributed manufacturing. So small micro factories, you come in, you help them to design your car, and literally build your car in a handful of days. So I can custom build a car and, and make it to my order out of plastic and cheaper and less carbon than a regular car. Exactly. That's, that's their vision, is actually have um, the community involved in, in their designs and how they build things. An electric sports car that you can make on a 3D printer, burn up the track at NASCAR, and then recycle? How do you top that? This is an all-electric motorcycle. It's the highest performance motorcycle you can buy, gas or electric. That's Richard Hatfield, CEO and founder of Lightning Bikes. He's a former finance guy who's taken on the challenge of building the world's greenest and fastest motorcycle. We've set three land speed records with our, our production bikes. We've won Pikes Peak first overall, beating 120 gas bike teams. Uh, so we've, we've developed it in competition, and now we're selling it to people who commute on them and, and ride them in the hills on weekends. How much does it cost? So this is the top-of-the-line bike. is 38000 we have a second bike that we'll start to deliver at the end of this year, which is 18000 So you are the Tesla of motorcycles. Those are big shoes to live up to, but uh, that's our aspiration, yes. And is it primarily aimed at the United States or more developing markets where motorcycles are more common? So our, our first products are really geared for the U.S., um, but the big market is in the developing nations at 250cc and 125cc. So how does a money guy know how to build an electric bike? So I've, I've been a motorsports enthusiast and a motorcyclist, uh, you know, since I was, uh, you know, very young. I worked in, in our company doing revolving lines of credit for emerging companies during the week and then raced cars and built motorcycles on the weekend. So it's a lifelong passion. So are Yamaha, Honda, Suzuki, Ducati, are they making uh, electric bikes? Uh, I think everyone has had one type of test or another. 
but uh, I think it's going to be very similar to what happened with Tesla. They'll wait until Lightning proves that there's a market, and then they'll jump in to compete. The profile of people who buy this, is it performance? Is it to save the earth? What's the profile of your buyers? bell curve of people who are enthusiastic about the technology, enthusiastic about the performance, enthusiastic about, you know, the environmental aspects of this, of the, the new technology. But the, the typical customer has a Tesla car and some kind of high-end European sport bike. What's the range of this bike? This? We have three battery packs. The small battery pack is 80 to 100 miles riding at the freeway on normal with traffic riding. The large battery pack is 140 to 150 miles. Uh, the recharge time is 30 minutes on a high-speed DC charger. And have you offered to give one to Elon Musk yet? Well, we're, uh, uh, we, we'd love to have that conversation. Not far away, standing next to a big, shiny white truck, I met one of Musk's former employees. Richard Simpkins left Tesla several years ago to start his own company. So Evio stands for Electric Vehicle Add-on Systems, and what we do is we convert current Class 1 through 7 trucks to hybrid electric, and it's for commercial customers. We convert them into a vehicle that can be used as an all-electric vehicle or a hybrid vehicle or a traditional vehicle, and we have a removable battery pack in the bed of the truck that gives our customers the autonomy to have power remotely. And who are your customers? Is it the military, utility companies? Who are they? Yeah, so our, our, our first customers are the United States Department of Defense, the Army and the Air Force, uh, also the California Energy Commission and MIT Lincoln Labs. Uh, with a number of different commercial customers here in the state of California uh, and other places around the country behind that. And why is the U.S. military wanting to have hybrid uh, trucks? So we have basically like the Swiss army knife in commercial trucks, right? It's mobile power. Uh, so we have bi-directional charging capability. In other words, our truck has the ability to sell its power back to the grid, back to the energy uh, company exportable power and a number of other options, our battery pack is also removable. You can take it out of the bed of the truck, and it's the only technology that can drive away from its power source. So you can use that battery remotely in the field to power your lights, construction equipment, uh, field hospitals, etc. Gas is cheap, oil is cheap. It, doesn't that make it hard for electric trucks or cars to compete with cheap gasoline now? Not our system. Our system is not about a pure return on investment from fuel after seven or eight years. Uh, our current system cost of $46,000 replaces $48,000 of traditional equipment for our customers. And it, what prompted you to go out on your own to leave Tesla, which is a very successful company? What prompted you to go out on your own? J just innovation. I mean, purely the opportunity to take the knowledge that we have and change an entire landscape and an entire commercial market, not just with, the, with what the product does, but everything else in their industrial ecosystem that our product affects. What's the biggest challenge you face trying to build a company? Being um, a non-traditional Silicon Valley startup in Silicon Valley. So we're hardware, number one. And we're automotive, number two. And, and the Valley doesn't understand automotive as much as it does software. But with connected cars, in a way, Detroit's coming to Silicon Valley, or Silicon Valley's coming to Detroit. Apple's getting into the auto business. So there's convergence happening between tech and automotive in a way that we haven't seen before. Uh, big convergence. And, and Detroit has to. 
or they'll get left behind. There is nowhere else in this country that you could innovate uh, automotive technology this fast, this vastly, other than here. Um, you know, what, what Elon did, he could not do in Detroit. You could not do in Ohio. It had to be in Silicon Valley. The, um, one of the analogies I like to use is Detroit thinks outside of the box. They, they try to, but that's quite relative depending on how big the box is. And in Silicon Valley, there is no box. It is pure thought, free thought, and innovation. Cars, trucks, motorcycles. The choices for electric rides are growing and getting faster and more stylish all the time. They may not be all that affordable yet, but prices are coming down as batteries get cheaper. Meanwhile, if you don't have 38 grand to drop on that lightning bike, there is another two-wheeled option for getting around, at least here in the Bay Area. My name is Jasmine Wallsmith, and I work with Scoot. Scoot is a network of shared electric scooters around San Francisco. And as Jasmine explained to me, they're pretty much unplug and go. So scoots are actually all over the city. We have about 400 scooters. And the way that you find them is you download our app, you log in, and you can locate, reserve, and even turn on your scooter through your app. Uh, You just need a driver's license and a credit card. And then if you have some experience riding already, you can watch videos to get trained. Um, If not, then you can come to one of our classes on the weekends, and we teach you how to ride a scooter. Do I need to bring a helmet? Ooh, actually, the helmets are included in all of our scooters. We have a large and a small so that everyone can be covered. And how often do you clean the helmets? That's a great question. We are constantly updating and cleaning our scooters. We have um, a dedicated team of, we call them our field techs. They're out there buffing up the scooters, cleaning up helmets, and making sure everything's ready to ride. Can I take it on the freeway? No way. Fair enough. I don't, I don't want to go on the freeway anyways. So what's your story? How did you come to Scoot? Why are you working for this company? I'm actually born and raised in the Bay Area, but I was, I've been living in Shanghai, China for the last five years. And there everyone lives um, on scooters. That's how everyone gets around such a dense city of 23 million people. So when I moved back here last year, I was very excited to see that Scoot was doing such cool stuff in the city and wanted to be a part of it. So what's the profile of your customers? Young people that don't own cars, zip around? What's the typical Scoot customer look like? Um, You know, we've got quite a range. You need to be 21 years old to ride. So that's the the lowest age. And then we have probably our largest demographic is around 21 to 45 years old, as you say, people who don't own cars. But we've really got every age range. When San Francisco gets as dense as Shanghai, and we seem to be headed that way, we may all be riding scooters. Maybe ones that float like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. That will come in handy for rising seas. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Our producers for this show are Jane Ann Chen and Annie Chelsea. Talia Schmidt is assistant producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.